if you're going to grow your business, if you have something really good going on, it's about doing it with the right resources at the right time and acknowledging that the resources might not be there or the time might be wrong uh, and pulling back instead of pushing things forward. And I just continued to push things forward. Um, and that was the ultimate demise of band. The thing about clothes though, you have to remember is they're so personal to everybody. So you're gonna get this varying, you know, breadth of opinion. And you gotta be really careful to sort of hold your own at the same time. How do you get attention now? I mean, I have to sort of just step back and be really patient. Cause what I'm trying to build here is not a fad. You know, I'm trying to create a, a meaningful brand that has legs and that's gonna be around for a while and that, um, you know, that people really love. You've rebanded. I've rebanded. Hello, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF Podcast. On this week's episode of Inside Fashion, I was very pleased to speak to my old friend, Scott Sternberg, who I caught up with in Los Angeles. This past week, Scott's had the whole fashion industry buzzing with the announcement that he was coming back to fashion and launching a brand new brand called Entire World. Of course, Scott first came to fashion renowned through the work he did in establishing Band of Outsiders as one of the most interesting modern and contemporary fashion brands to come out of the United States. But as some of you may know, that business did not pan out as Scott had once expected, and he learned so many lessons along the way that helped to inform the business strategy behind the launch of Entire World. So I sat down with Scott at his beautiful house in Silver Lake, overlooking the beautiful views of Los Angeles, and talked to him about this business strategy behind Entire World and what it has taken to put this new concept together. We also reflected on what he learned from his experience at Band of Outsiders and his advice for entrepreneurs creating their own brands now. If you're a BOF professional, you will have seen the exclusive story we published on the launch of Entire World. And if you're not a BOF professional, then maybe you should consider becoming one today. Have a look at BOF Professional on businessoffashion.com or click on the link in the description to this podcast. And without further ado, here's Scott Sternberg, Inside Fashion. Good morning, Scott. Morning, Imran. How are you? I'm good, how are you? Good, we're here in your beautiful home in Los Angeles over, overlooking this view. Tell me what we're looking at right now. Well, you're looking at a combination of haze and smog, but through that, <laughs> you would see the Century City skyline. We're looking west towards the ocean. And we're in Silver Lake, so you're getting, you're getting Franklin Hills, Hollywood, Sunset Strip, the whole thing. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and you said spring is here because the ants are out. Yeah. I just noticed a school of ants. So it's a you know, double-edged sword, the changing of the seasons. Right. Well, um, you, my friend, have had a very busy week. Indeed. How's it going? It's going really well. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's such an abstract thing launching a digital business because you're sort of, you know, I've been working on this for quite some time and of course haven't really told many people about it. So it's nice to get a reaction. You're, you're putting information out there. You know, I tried to like do this in a way where um, I could really get a message across in a concise way, uh, both to the trade, to the press and, and to customers and all that stuff. And, um, it's this weird digital bubble that I've been in all week, kind of getting people's reactions. Quite different from opening a store or having a fashion show or something like that. Right. 
Okay, so before we get into the new business, which yeah. of course I'm super interested in, I think people would be curious to know what you've been doing the past few years yeah. Yeah. in the interim period. You know, did, when, you know, when Band of Outsiders kind of, in, kind of you left and the whole <laughs> situation, I mean, did, did you just stop for a while? or like We saw each other a couple yeah. of times, but I didn't know if you were hatching a plan in the background or like what was going on. Sure. You were very cagey about it. But. I, yeah, I know. I, it's fun being cagey. It's fun having a secret. And I'm horrible at keeping them. Um, so it was a good test. But no, you know, I, it, when, when, when the band news broke, that wasn't news to me. I had been sort of processing that and dealing with that and trying to work through that or resolve that or let that go for a matter of many months. Um, so, you know, I, I, during, you know, I, I gave myself license to just chill for a summer. And I was lucky enough to have two consulting opportunities just fall in my lap. So I knew that, you know, financially and, and time-wise and whatever I was sort of taking care of. Um, so I jumped into those. Um, and there was always this notion of, uh, there was no doubt in my mind that I was gonna start another company. I was entered- You knew that right away? Yes. Okay. I mean, I, I am an entrepreneur by birth, I think. It's like a bug, it's a sickness. Um, and however daunting it might seem to start with nothing, to me, that's like, I, I start, you know, saliva forms in my mouth. I get excited. It's my a hands Pavlovian response. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, it's opportunity. It's just, uh, it's, it's pure expanse in front of me. So, you know, I, I had a client in Korea. I was flying back and forth there a lot. I was working with, uh, I think I told you I was working with Goop. I was working with Gwyneth a little bit, helping her uh, sort of realize her vision for for G-Label, the, the women's uh, private label clothing line that, that they do, and just tinkering around with this basic notion of, okay, it's a new company, and it's not expensive. And it's, it's uh, everything uh, in terms of spirit, to some extent, the band was, what people were really connecting to. Um, but it had to be a potentially profitable, scalable, um, not necessarily mass operation, but something that had the ability to, uh, to, to really reach a lot more people than Band did. Um, so that was always lingering in the background. And there was a, an earlier version of this that would have uh, involved partners. So I was meeting with those types of people. And then and I started raising money like a year and a half ago, two years ago. The it's not expensive bit yeah. is quite a radical departure yeah. from band. Mm. I remember I asked you once, remember we did that interview in Florence? Yeah, in the Sun? the Petit Show, yeah. And I think, I have to go check him, but I think I asked you like, why is it so expensive? And um, I loved Band of Outsiders, as I think you know, because yes. it used to actually fit me yes. really well, and I still have a few treasured items, but, you know, is, is entire world basically a reaction to that? You know, you're saying, you know, it's the first thing that came out of your, out of your mouth just now. It's like, it's not expensive. Yeah, uh, in a, a reaction to the negative reaction of band's prices? Not, listen, that was always internally, that never rang true to me or the team as we're making these things, as I'm, 
whoever I'm bringing on board and sort of conveying what was a very clear brand ethos and set of design codes. Um, when I would go into a store and the stuff was on markdown and I would see it at 40% off or 60% off, it was so clear in my head that like that's what that shirt should cost. That is, there's value there. I know what's going into the shirt. I, I sort of understand the market. Um, I, I do understand the market and, and you know, that, that's where we should be. But in the context of at least where the wholesale system was at at that point, there wasn't really a place for that. And from a business model perspective, to do, to do that, I either would have had to uh, get a lot of capital behind me and have a high volume business um, or just wipe the slate clean and start over and think about um, how do I do this uh, without the support of that wholesale system? Because that's really where the, that's really where that sort of, you know, 60% uh, adds on to the price and it, things sort of go off the rails. Not to say that there isn't value in that also. Um, but yeah, I think that it was, that was just, it, it never felt right. It felt right with some of this stuff, but, and that was, it, that was the right way to do band. That was the right way to start. I mean, it, it was really clear when I, when I had the notion to start a company and that it was gonna be clothing, I, I was advised by uh, Emily Scott, formerly Emily Woods, before that Emily Senator, who started J. Crew with her dad, Arthur. And she uh, basically introduced me to this whole network of her J. Crew people, who were like her tight crew. Mm -hmm. She had already left, she was on the board, but she wasn't managing it day to day. And most of them said the same thing. Oh, you just need to, you know, I, I had an idea for, for a mass market thing for Target. And I showed Liz Lang, the maternity wear designer. And, and I had this idea and shared it with Emily because that's what our company was. That's what we were doing. We were uh, consulting for some apparel, you know, mass merchants, stuff like that, and working on some media projects. Anyway, so the feedback I got from everybody was you just need to make really expensive stuff get people super excited about it, and then you'll have a platform to do what you want. Um, that is this, this sort of more democratic, uh, mass-leaning type of thing. So it made a lot of sense, and, and I, you need that, you know, the, the wholesale, the, those group of stores, they're, they're a wonderful uh, set of proselytizers. They're gatekeepers to some extent, they're a power structure, but they're, they're able to, just like the press and media, uh, put a context around something. So it has value to a customer. Um, so it kind of had to be that. And it somehow, from a price point perspective, I went into suits, because Barney's was my biggest customer and I wanted to make them domestically and they ended up being in the two and $3,000 range. And from a fit perspective, honestly, yes, the intent was for it to be somewhat tiny, but you know, production would always come in a little bit too small. So the uh, even less democratic in the fit, not by intent. Um, and the company, as it grew, somehow became smaller in its purview and its like potential uh, to scale. Um, but I don't really regret any of it. Right. You know. The, so the direct to consumer bit, apart from you know bypassing the wholesaler for now at least. What what other elements or what other thinking rather? Inform the decision to just say like I'm going to skip that whole physical retail bit and I'm just going to go straight to the customer. You know, a lot of it was just like this is how to start. 
this is the way to get started here, uh, in contrast to what I just described. Right. right? Um, I think that I have uh, from band this bass, this sort of strong bass of uh, this cult, as I've been reading all week, um, catching some cultural cult vibes um, or waves or whatever. But that I, I could leverage that and leverage a, a lot of relationships to start this in a very pure way, direct to consumer, if you will, um, where we weren't investing money in markets and press previews and fashion shows. Um, and we were able to have the flexibility from a development standpoint. It's, to it's a totally different calendar. I'm working on fall still, like fall of this year. And I won't be done with fall until, you know, a couple months before we actually just ship it right to the customer. And that, uh, it's not like I'm just pushing everything forward. I'm giving us a lot of time to develop exactly what this stuff needs to be. Um, so a lot of stuff went in, into that. And all, you know, also I think like a lot of the ideas that I had, uh, that I have about um, how to communicate what a brand is to a customer, like we tried to fit those into the fashion system. You know, we did those shows. The Pity show was great. I think that was a good sort of combination of... I never forget that show. It was a good one. That was a great one. Uh, you know, the very, very me, and, but it also was, it was a great show. It was great theater, um, quite literally. And, but I, this, the stuff that I was really passionate about, you know, sticking a model in a gallery window in Paris for 36 hours and live feeding uh, a conceptual fashion show inspired by Joseph Boys. Like, that's just not gonna translate in Paris. And we got a great reaction, and it was great for the brand, but at the same time, every Paris editor, like, you know, uh, Natalie from PRC, so lovely, totally drank the Kool-Aid and brought she all She told these... me she listens to the podcast. Oh, the good, hi, Natalie. Um, <laughs> she's so lovely and so supportive, her whole team. And they were bringing all these amazing editors in who were like, this is great, when are you gonna show on a runway? It's like, okay. Like, we're, what, what's happening here? Um, so I guess a lot of the thought was, okay, if we can just sort of allocate all those budgets of, you know, uh, that we're really just directing content to us, to the press, to those gatekeepers, right? And just go, go right to the source, which is what's happened over the past four years anyway, this sort of democratization of uh, information and intellectual property and imagery and all that stuff. You still need the, the gatekeepers. You, we still want, you know, you're, you're, the media is a great filter through which to get a message out there and to proselytize it and to amplify it and all that. But to just think about the customer and the press at the same time, and it's just one holistic message, that felt more efficient, cheaper, a little more sane. Right. So apart from what we've discussed already, how else is this business model different what are the other things that are you know that you either got rid of or that you pivoted so that you could do things in a way that you think makes more sense now yeah sure i think the biggest thing which is where, where things really got off the rails of band is the the skew count the from a merchandising perspective where it's 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 so streamlined it's just completely a different approach because we're not talking about you know, this network of, I mean, we sold everywhere, Neiman Marcus, Saks, Nordstrom's, Barney's, uh, boutiques around the world. And when, you, when you're when you doing that, you're, first of all, you're serving all these different markets and uh, 
you're, you, you know, basically you're, you're relying on buyers for market feedback and they're all requesting as e-commerce was becoming so big, everybody was carrying all the same stuff, same designers, same products, so everybody wanted something special. And your development across the board within every category and adding categories, because you're trying to grow, um, it just, it was crazy. We were developing so much product and exponentially, every colorway you add, every style you add, even if it's just like a variation on something, that, the erosion, the, the sort of like runaway train that that creates for your team, from just creating a new style number, new artwork over here, uh, another roll of sample fabric that's 50 meters, that stuff adds up so fast. So just getting rid of all of that and having this like super streamlined skew, uh, skew plan because we're not trying to service all these stores. We're just, you know, there's a, it's April. What do we think people want to wear right now? What looks good together on this screen? Let's go. So that's really the big change. The development costs are just way lower. Uh, the marketing uh, approach is, it's still content driven as it was a band, but it's not, like I said, it's not to the trade. There's not this like $500,000 budget every year for shows. But how do you, okay, so if you're not relying on fashion shows to get consumer attention mm. and trade attention, how do you get attention now? I mean, you've done a launch and obviously everyone was like, oh, he's back and Step all of that one. happened. Yeah. But like, how are you gonna continue to get interest? There's so much noise out there now. I know, I know, it's overwhelming. I mean, I think that it's a, it's a combination of a couple of things. First of all, there's this, this, you have to, I mean, I have to sort of just step back and be really patient, because what I'm trying to build here is not a fad. It's not, um, I'm, I'm not trying to catch a wave right now and, and, and uh, you know, blow up really big, really fast. I'm, you know, I'm trying to create a, a meaningful brand that has legs and that's going to be around for a while and that, um, you know, that people really love. Uh, so I think that, you know, step one is really play to the base, you know, sort of like a political campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what that video was about. It was really a, just, this is, I'm I, back. I, I, here's what, it, here's what I'm doing. Here's yeah. why guys. Um, did you shoot that here? I ran on that couch mm -hmm. and you yeah. shot it by yourself. Right on that iPhone. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there was really no other way to do that, right? I mean, the, the spirit of, of this company is very experimental in that way and very much about, as was banned, sort of taking out the, uh, just not being too precious about all that stuff. Um, no, there's so many hilarious takes on my phone of, hi there. Hi there, hi there. <laughs> um, kind of mortifying, and just figuring out like how to like look like I'm actually looking in the camera. But um, so you know, I think that's how to start, and I think you know, there's there's this sort of narrative that we're uh, we've we've loosely mapped out for the next year, year and a half. Uh, that involves uh, content that lives on Instagram, content that lives within our e-commerce platforms. Um, content that lives within the physical world, whether that's with a wholesale partner, or whether that's uh, on our own. Some of it's highly conceptual and actually might, isn't intended to sell merchandise, but just to sort of capture uh, people's attention and get them to buy stuff online. And some of the ideas are more about, come buy a t-shirt, we're right. here, you know. So content mm. is gonna be a really big part of yeah. this. I mean, content's a big part of everything now, but 
And while you did these kind of immersive or sometimes theatrical productions, mm. you know, very much in your DNA, yes. um, during your time at band, now there's going to have to be a real stream, steady stream of content. Yeah, no doubt. Um, but, you, you know, it, it doesn't need to be, you know, we don't need to be at like this decibel level all the way up here all the time. I think, again, it's a narrative. You're, you you want to um, engage people and then give them a chance like this video. There's other stuff we have all pent up, ready to go. But, you know, even just two weeks ago, we were looking at each other like, we got to step back here. This is some good content we have uh, on deck. Let's let people... Give them a week to watch that video. Sure. We don't need to sell everything out on the first day. Do you know how many views it got yet? You know, it's funny. I emailed my, I don't, I emailed my content guide to find out. Why did you guys put it on Vimeo, by the way? It's, it's on YouTube now. Okay. The reason it was on Vimeo is too boring for this podcast. Okay. <laughs> okay. It is technical. I was like, why is it on no, Vimeo? Uh, the stuff that we have to, to stream stuff through our uh, on our site, it has to be on Vimeo, and I hate—I'm so not into it because it's like anti-democratic. It's like yeah. this geeky little thing, but it's a—the site's pretty content-heavy, so we're trying to be really good about that. Okay, so tell me about—you know—obviously we're in an, in the era of direct-to-consumer businesses, and there's all of these—you um, know—online retail is growing super fast, but there's also a recognition that physical retail still has, if you want to call it retail, still has a role to play. You know, oh, yeah. What are you thinking in terms of like in that direction? Yeah, there, listen, there's, there's a set of, like I was starting to say, there's a set of ideas that are, um, that are more uh, ex uh, experimental, experiential, uh, less about selling product, more about engaging people uh, in, the, in the physical world. There's sort of like retail ideas that are about retail and about retail's going, uh, where it's going. And then, uh, listen, I, I think it's exceptionally important. I think everything is cyclical. I think we're definitely in a place where people live inside of their phones right now. But um, the, the remedy to that is the physical world. And I think we're, we're going to grow out of a place pretty, pretty quickly or relatively quickly where um, this notion, not nostalgic, but just human and connective of like being out in the world and, and interacting with people, which I think is a big part of what a store can be, not just about interacting with product or interacting with a salesperson, person, but interacting with the community that a brand is uh, galvanizing or whatever. I think all that's important. And you know, like to some extent, what we're making right now, it's all engineered to be able to buy online, even on mobile. Like it's really pure. I don't want to say simple. It's it's cool stuff. It's considered stuff, but it doesn't really require a, a touch feel. It's free shipping, free returns. It's sort of easy. Globally, or just in the states for now? Uh, the free shipping is in the states over a hundred bucks. Uh, not free shipping globally. Uh, that's would be very expensive for us. Sure. But, but you will be shipping globally. Yeah, just to the place. We're only we're only not shipping to the places like FedEx, like doesn't ship to for whatever weird reasons. No, that was like um, that was super important. I never could really understand why some direct to consumer companies don't do that. I mean, from a marketing perspective, you have to stay focused. I'm not. We're not trying to take over the world on day one. But Band had a customer base in Asia. 
um, a couple territories in Europe where it just seemed like a miss not to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I want to talk more about the design process because, you know, you, as you said, the, the product is much more streamlined. Yeah. So when you're doing something, or more edited, or however you want to call it, so when you're, when you're how is the design process different now? Because before you were designing collections, yes. and they had to have Themes. a theme, yes. and there was carryover product and new product, and that's all gone. It's all gone. So like, what do you, how do you work with your team now as you're coming up with? Yeah, no, it's a good question, because band was like, king of theme, right? right. Yeah, I, it's like you, 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 somebody told me that's how you do that. And once you get me going on that, it was, you know, I think one of our last collections, which I loved, the theme was barbecue dance in the 60s on acid. And it really, <laughs> it was a really good one. Um, it was slightly ridiculous as a theme, but the graphics really came out cool. Um, but, you know, those themes, the, the, the positive thing about them is you can somehow just come up with some wacky stuff that ends up being a bestseller that, that, that actually expands your design codes, uh, whatever it might be. The negative side is uh, you make a lot of things that actually fall outside of what, what, what that set of codes are because you're, you're trying to service the theme or whatever. Um, so now it's, it's, there's, there's just a really clear set of design codes. I mean, I'd sort of laid them out in the, uh, in the video to some extent. Do you want to repeat them here for someone yeah, who hasn't sure. seen the video? Um, but watch the video, everybody. Please uh, watch. Yeah. Well, it's, embed it in the podcast on the site, too. Check. So, you know, it's about this idea of purity, uh, both in terms of uh, fabrications, so working with uh, organic and recycled cottons, uh, just straight-up cotton on the underwear, which you can't actually organic cotton, but you, you don't really find out there. Um, thinking about, uh, so, you know, looking away from synthetics and things like that. Thinking about uh, color as this, uh, which is what I love and how I dress, it's being like a huge element of what, what sort of elevates uh, some of these staples to being something really special and something really a little more idiosyncratic and personal. Um, certainly something classic, but not preppy anymore. Mm -hmm. I think preppy connotes a, a notion of a, a sort of outdated, at least right now, feeling notion of a, a certain lifestyle that I, this isn't really about. It's a little stuffier. Um, and then thinking about, you know, on the women's side, there's, on both sides, silhouette is in play, right? So it's not like on men's, it's not all Tiny Tim. Sorry. Um, Damn. But it's, you know, you'll find your shirt. You'll be good. Um, but just playing with different shapes because that's how I dress. You know, right. that's how I've been dressing for the past six, seven years, but not, that wasn't the band ethos. Um, and you know, being really open to who our customer is. So having an idea for the last year as we're designing and developing these fabrics, um, okay, this woman is probably between these ages and she, these are the pieces we, I think she wants and needs and all of that, but then just stepping back and now that we're about to go live, uh, leaving that a little bit open to, to feedback and, and, uh, and yeah not being arrogant as to think we know everything. Right. So if you're more democratic, it's more streamlined. You know, one of the things you are still, I assume, is a stickler for quality. Like, how mm. are you delivering something that meets your quality hurdle? Yeah, Scott no. Sternberg <laughs> standard. 
It's, while also being democratic. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge, it's a real headache. What I do, the first thing I did when I had the brand concept locked down was not go to a bunch of VCs and rich people and try to raise money. I went, I was going to uh, Korea for Samsung, who was a client, and uh, with just every trip, I would go down to Tokyo to see friends or go to Naoshima and Teshima to see art or whatever it was. And um, I would pop in and meet uh, a potential uh, supply chain partner for, for entire world. Um, and I was really into this idea of getting, having my first investor be that partner having somebody, a trading company in Japan, trading companies in Japan uh, sort of operate across the entire supply chain from you know, trading in the yarn market, fiber market, all the way up to uh, producing garments. And so I met with a few variations of those guys. And um, you know, the thing about Japan, there's so many uh, positives and negatives to working with a Japanese partner. One of the positives is their, their quality you know, standards are as high or higher than mine at any price point, whatever it is. So I went to all these guys with a very clear set of uh, sketches, uh, reference photos, target FOB costs um, based on a margin I knew I needed to have. The business model had been set for a couple years and, uh, you know, just vetted all these guys and just spent a lot of time, you know, there was no ticking clock on the product development. So if something wasn't going to work, I didn't have to keep it in the line because I needed that, the, that portion of sales or whatever it was. Um, so to some extent, everything filters, all the production filters through this partner. Um, they, ha they understand the standards and they're just as anal as I am about sort of executing upon it. So we don't have this disparate set of factories everywhere. Um, we have this sort of one partner who does subcontract, but we can just sort of ensure that standard before it ever leaves port, before it ever comes here and gets inspected. Mm. Is there anything you're worried about? We're a few days away from your launch, April 2nd. And by the time this goes up on the podcast, uh, the launch will have already happened. But like, since we're here in the lead up, yeah. what's going through your head? I mean, there's a, listen, there's a million things. I think that I, I have to, uh, you know, the team, we, we all have to acknowledge that things aren't gonna go perfectly. Like, right, like there's, the, the, the developers have been here all week from New York and they're bug squashing as they call it. And, uh, you know, there's already been an enormous disaster at the warehouse that I will not uh, publicize on this uh, podcast, but we're, we're getting through it. Um, I think I've learned the apparel industry, outside from the fashion industry, the schmata business, yeah. it's a mess. The supply chain part of things, it's just always, you know, it's not automated. It's not, the, the, you know, whatever robots might be involved, it's an imperfect process. And I've, I've over the years, uh, come to peace with that. So, you know, I think concerns really, I, I just want to make sure that we're, you know, people feel good about interacting with the company. Now that I feel good about the product, yeah. um, I feel good about the platform, it looks really cool. Um, but I, you know, I want that that these touch points now to be positive ones, and everything we planned out to this point should lead to that. Yeah. But did you do any testing with consumers or try to get any input before? I mean, you're going live with this thing. I right? know. How how did you choose what to start with? And listen, I am one of those people who asks everybody. Right. Right. So you know, on my team. 
I have uh, this woman, Nicole Carey, who's worked with me for 10 years, and she's the, the sort of consummate muse of the women's, and she is a no girl as opposed to a yes woman or whatever, right? She, as with most of my staff, their instinct uh, is they, they love the purity of the ideas and all that stuff, but their first instinct usually is to question it and to sort of, you know, take it to every bad place it could potentially go whether it's a t-shirt and the fit or a wacky marketing idea or an image or whatever it is. So I have that going for me. And my whole staff is are bandies, right? Uh, so I, I can trust that. You've rebanded. I've rebanded. Yeah, I mean, come on, recruiting costs or do I? Yeah. And these guys are great. Um, the shorthand is the, the opportunity costs there. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. But yeah, a lot of friends and family. and. The thing about clothes, though, you have to remember is they're so personal to everybody. So you're going to get this varying, you know, breadth of opinion. And you got to be really careful to sort of hold your own at the same time. Because one, especially like women's underwear, right? We're launching with that in May. What one girl wants and what another girl wants could not be more disparate. You know, if you say thong to one woman. Nightmare. Nightmare. And you know, another friend of mine would never wear a full coverage, uh, you know, uh, on her butt. You know, right. it's like it's out of the question. Um, so when I started that polling last year, it was like, you know what? Let's get, no, let's just sort of go with our gut here. Uh, but yeah, no, we'll see. Um, what's been the reaction since you broke the story with us on, what day was that? Wednesday. Wednesday morning. London time, I guess it was a little bit later in the day. Since then, what's happened? Like, you know, how's the industry reacted? How have your consumer, you call it the cult? My cult? How did they react? What, what's, what's been the... Cult, super happy, for sure. Um, you know, there's so much, I, I, you know, I, I, I knock on my laminate wood table. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of goodwill for Band of Outsiders. Yeah. Um, I think that the way I always tried to operate and the company I hope always operated within the industry was just super respectful of people and uh, whether that is working with the media outlet to release a story um, and not doing anything shady or how we dealt with stores or whatever it was. I think there was a positivity behind the brand, even the, you know, starting the whole giving people cookies on their seats at, at fashion I shows. I remember those cookies. Yeah. I just saw Christina Tosi from Momofuku in New York a couple days ago. She sent way too many to the office. But I think that, you know, and even how, how the exit happened uh, with the factories, all those, that, that I, you know, I, I've always tried to be just like super respectful. And I think the karma there has been great all week. So people say nice things. I'm sure there's a few snarky things as, you know, as there normally the are. It's the world we live in. Listen, it's Troll Nation. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. Um, so what are you ha hoping happens on April 2nd? Oh, gosh, I haven't put too much. Honestly, I know it sounds weird. I haven't put too much weight on April 2nd. Okay. Right? I mean, it, and also, like, we, you know, like I said, there was a lot of content we could have pushed out before the launch. We could have sort of spread that time out, created more anticipation. 
the launch video wasn't even an Instagram campaign. It's, that's really a web thing, right? It doesn't work on Instagram. It's too long. Um, so I, I'm really hoping the website works and people can fulfill their orders and all that stuff. I think it's going to be a, um, I think it's going to be a gradual build uh, over the next, through the summer to fall. Um, and yeah. Um, so finally, there are so many cautionary tales mm. in fashion. There might be some people listening here who are um, having their own struggles, building their brands or contemplating mm. changing up their business models. When you look back to your experience at Band and everything that happened, because clearly that's not what you wanted to happen. No. What would you dif do differently? Like what? It's a good question. I have clearly thought about it. I think there's a, there's a lot. I would say that, you know, there was something about, that was great about the brand was there was something very precious behind it, but the point where there was the most, where we were at kind of the height of buzz probably, around the time of that Pitti interview, 2012 or so, sales were, they, things just grew so fast between 2010 and 2012. Um, and that was a time where uh, we really needed to harness that energy. Um, and I wasn't able to. And so that- Why not? Couldn't find a, a business lead. That was the biggest- A CEO. A CEO. Uh, that was sort of the biggest uh, dearth in the company. This is just like a, a, a dad or a mom, you know, somebody who, where I could really do my thing and promote the brand. and. Make, uh, sort of develop these ideas into bigger ideas and focus on the product and all that stuff. I was doing all that stuff. Um, and, f you know, and further, that, was, that would have been a really good time to open a store in both Japan and, and uh, L.A., probably not New York, uh, cheaply, quickly, easily to just get it out there, harness it, physicalize it. And, you know, I couldn't pull it all together at that time. Part of it was preciousness and being really careful about where I took money from and uh, where, how all this stuff would, would realize itself and being a little worried about that. And also probably some amount of founder syndrome and wanting to keep things somewhat small. But when we finally did, were able to raise capital um, and found some senior level people, the reality is uh, they were the wrong people. I didn't raise enough capital that took into account that things might not go perfectly according to plan. Right. Um, and it, uh, it, was, it, it was something that much sooner, I could have noticed that much sooner. And I had sort of, uh, you know, by that point it was, it, was, it was so off the rails, it was so busy, it was so out of control that it just couldn't be harnessed. So I think that I th it, it's really a matter of, if you're gonna grow your business, if you have something really good going on, it's about, doing it with the right resources at the right time, and acknowledging that the resources might not be there or the time might be wrong, uh, and pulling back instead of pushing things forward. And I just continued to push things forward. Um, and that was the ultimate demise of band. Is that because you felt like expectation? Or was that an internal thing? I think it was both. You know, because it's not like I was operating in the, entirely inside a bubble. I mean, I had, a, I had investors, I had a board, I had 
tons of uh, you know people who would offer advice and mentorship and all of that stuff. Um, a lot of what I was getting was push forward, open the store. That's going to do it. That's going to that's going to you know sort of like it's saying harness this energy and 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 really uh, push things to the next level or whatever. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think also, at the end of the day, I don't know if band was ever conceived as something that should have been much bigger than it ever was. Um, I don't know. It it really was a, a, a labor of love, passion project, born out of my house. It was where, I, it was the vehicle through which I learned how to design clothes. It was, it was a really personal thing. and. I don't know, maybe it was always sort of destined for that, and that's okay. So my friend Kevin used to call it my little art project. Well, that little art project, or passion project, provided the platform and experience and lessons and inspiration for what you're doing now. Word. Right? Yeah. Okay, good luck. Thank you. I hope it goes really well on, is it Tuesday? Monday. Monday. Monday, Wow, and we're, we're Saturday in LA. Um, I really, I really hope it goes well. Keep me posted. I will do. I will check it out Thanks. and go look for extra small. Were you an extra small band or a small? I was an extra small. I was like a tiny, tiny person. We're gonna have to custom XXXU. <laughs> That's okay. I fall outside the normal um, size range, but um, it's really cool to see you back in action. Thanks. Um, that's all for Inside Fashion this week uh, from. Hazy, still somewhat sunny Los Angeles. I'm Imran Ahmed, <laughs> founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends, leave us some feedback, um, tell us what you think, and let us know if there's anyone you want us to track down to talk to. Uh, it's been really fun doing these podcasts because I get to catch up with all my old friends yeah. in the industry who are all doing great things. But there's, um, there's many, many more conversations to be had. So tune in next week. There'll be another great inside fashion conversation. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Amar. And that's all from here in Los Angeles. Bye. Bye.